Welcome, glad you're here. Welcome online, good to see you. If you have a Bible, would you open it to Hebrews uh, chapter 6, please, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I was thinking this week about uh, something that happened that actually fits with our text pretty well. Uh, it was, I don't know, a while back, David and I were settling in for the evening to watch a movie, and uh, we had big bowls of popcorn like we often do when we're watching a movie, and I'm sitting there absentmindedly eating my popcorn, and something is not right. And uh, I just think, this tastes a little off, but, uh, you know, absent-minded, I'm not paying close attention. It's just not hitting the spot like it's supposed to. So I grabbed this, the salt shaker that's sitting right there, and I put more salt on my, my uh, popcorn, and I go back to watching the movie and eating, and it's getting worse. And so I put more salt on, and it's getting worse. And, and finally, it, I'm a little thick, but finally it dawns on me, this is tasting like bad kettle corn. It's not tasting like popcorn. And uh, I take some of the salt from the shaker and put it in my hand and taste it, and it's sugar. Somehow we'd gotten sugar in the salt shaker, which, you know, white, granular, it's kind of, well, okay, I guess that happens. And then, then I realized um, if you're a little absent-minded, which one of us must have been, uh, it's not difficult to make the trade. Here's our salt container, and uh, here's our sugar container. And, you know, side by side, the, the difference is obvious, but if you're just absolutely reaching into the cupboard for the kind of blue round thing, and it's got white granular stuff in it, and you put it into the salt shaker, well, you could wind up with a rude awakening. And uh, when I want salt, I want, I want the real deal. I don't want even something like sugar masquerading. And uh, I got to thinking about that because this passage, the section we've been going through is actually talking about what's the real deal and what's masquerading. Uh, as, as genuine faith, right? He's been going through the book of Hebrews and he's been making the case for Jesus being better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. There's a better covenant. He's the greater high priest. And he interrupts that section about the greater high priest to give a warning and to really home in on the idea of what does real faith really look like? What does that actually mean? And that's the passage we're gonna look at this morning. Last week was this really hard-edged and, uh, wow, kind of powerful and overpowering warning that probably came across really strong to them when they first heard it. It certainly comes across strongly to us when we hear it. And, uh, and then we're still in the middle of that section. He's, he's going to go back next week to uh, looking at Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he's going to finish up the idea of um, what does it look like to really be a follower of Jesus? And um, the, 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 the sun comes out. The, the dark clouds from last week begin to clear and the hard edge begins to lighten up as he's given the warning and now he's, now he's moving on from there. And as he does, he's giving us uh, a picture of what, what faith actually truly looks like. And, and what he's gonna show us is that um, transforming faith is true faith, right? Verse, uh, chapter six, verses nine through 12, that's what it's about. Transforming faith is true faith. Now, he's just 
cautioned them, he's warned them rather strongly to make sure that they have genuine faith. And now he's going on and he's gonna, he's gonna show us that transforming faith is true faith. And then he's gonna finish the chapter by kind of extending from there saying, and as you look to continue in that journey, what you need to understand is that life is anchored in the character of God. That's chapter six, verses uh, 13 through 20. Life is anchored in the character of God. And that's his encouragement. But first, let's look at this transforming faith as true faith. If you want to read along with me, we'll pick it up in verse 9. He's just had this pretty harsh statement saying, you know, if you're this kind of person um, and you turn away, there's no hope. There's no restoration. And then he gives an illustration of ground um, that is fruitful, that is blessed, and ground that should be fruitful but never brings up any actual fruit. It only brings up weed that is cursed. And... Um, On that harsh note, he kind of turns the tone in verse 9. That's where we'll pick it up. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so he's he's turned the corner and, and he's gotten lighter in his tone and he's saying, you know, there's all these hard things that I've just said, but I actually don't believe that's true of you. I believe different things of you. I believe things that go with salvation of you. And as he does that, he, he really makes it clear that it is transforming faith that's true faith. And he, he kind of unpacks that first with this statement um, in verse 9 when he says, we believe better things of you, uh, things that belong to salvation, right? There's a general statement that basically says, if you have a genuine relationship with God, it will change you. There's no such thing as somebody in relationship with God that is not being transformed, uh, a relationship with God is not simply making a statement to say, here's what I believe. It's not just this uh, mental assent to a reality. It's an embracing of that reality. And it's not something that I do. It's something that happens to me. But when it happens to me that I respond to, I respond to God's grace and faith, there's this transforming relationship that's begun. Everybody who's in relationship with God is being changed. Anybody who's not being changed is not actually in relationship with God. That's what he's saying. I don't believe these harsh things that I've just been talking about in your case because I see things in you that go along with salvation. These are the things that the transformation, I can, I can see that. I can see that you have changed. Um, and then he unpacks it with, with two kind of components. The first one he sees in, in detail, and the other one he anticipates and he expects, and, and he even wants them to be ready for, right? This transformation can take a lot of different forms. As you and I walk in relationship with God, fundamental to that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us and to transform us. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. All of the things that we see, there's a change of character that's happening. We're told in Romans 8 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God. The Holy Spirit is doing his work on us throughout our lives, and we're changing. 
and it looks a lot of different ways, he calls out two things in this passage. The first one, he sees in abundance in their lives, and that's in verse 10, where he says to them, um, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. One of the things that happens as a person who's in genuine relationship with God is that we love other people who are in genuine relationship with God. We're brought into God's family and we love the family, right? And we love God's name. We love his character. We love his reputation. We love him. We bear his name and we love him. That's what he's saying. You guys do that. You, you have this love for the name of God, for the reputation of God, for the character of God, for expressing God in the world, and that shows up. And one of the ways that shows up is just in the way you love each other, the way you love others who are part of the same family. Now, he doesn't unpack that here. A little bit later on, he'll give a little more detail because in chapter 10, just briefly, he's gonna remind them of how they were faithful to their brothers and sisters under hardship. Right? There's persecution that's coming. Some are even imprisoned. And instead of backing away from them, which would have been safer, you leaned in and you showed love. Right? So they care for each other even at a cost to themselves. He doesn't un unpack all that it means, but he's saying, look, you guys are the real deal. I know that because God's at work in you. He's transforming you. You are different than you would have been. Doesn't mean that everyone's as good as they could be but it does mean everyone's different than they would have been, and that trajectory is a Godward trajectory. One area that shows in is how we treat each other. Just changes everything. Um, when we were in, in Cambodia a couple of weeks ago, we stayed with a, um, the host church. Um, the, the pastor of the church is a man named Sofeik. and he uh, is somebody who I think embodies, in fact, his whole family embodies this passage uh, to a T. He, uh, he actually graduated from university with two degrees. One was in political science and one was in economics. So you can get a picture of where his heart was, what he was going for. He was going to be a major player in making change in his country. And he speaks English very, very well. So he's positioned to be able to take on all kinds of roles in, in government or industry in a big way that would make a big difference. But somewhere along the way, God redirected his heart and said, actually, what I want from you is I want you to be a pastor. I want you to shepherd my people. And so he studied, and now he's, a, now he's a pastor, and that's what he does. And he's very good at it. He's very loving. He's very gracious. He abandoned the plan that he had and moved in this direction instead because he loved God. And that love of God led to loving God's people, and it just directed his life in a fresh way. You can see the transformation that's taken place. He's the one who oversaw where we put all the wells and he was making sure that these are going into needy villages and that it's helping these people and those people and it's helping plant this church and helping support this group of believers and he's got a very compassionate heart. He's very compassionate and caring for us. Everything that happened happened on his family's property. Right, so I told you we had a, a tent meeting with more than a thousand people. That was a tent meeting with more than a thousand people running all over their front yard. That was quite a deal. But they, you know, his, his parents, a little bit older than me, lived through the whole um, 
horrible situation that happened in the 70s in uh, Cambodia. Some of us are old enough to remember at least a little bit about that. One of the worst events in all of human history. It was just horrible. People were dying like crazy. They were being murdered. It was, it was just ridiculous. And his family actually survived that. His parents escaped. When they came back into the country, as soon as it was safe to do that, land was available for practically nothing because nobody was living there. So they bought this big piece of property and they were going to settle down and kind of make that their, their place, their stake their claim to whatever was going to be next. But along the way, God worked in their hearts. So really that's become this great facility for the church. Their house is there. Actually, they have several houses because Sopek has, 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 uh, has 10 kids, most of whom are adopted because there's all these needy children. And so they built houses to put people in and they, they have a church and they outgrew that. And so now that's their fellowship hall and they built another church next door and that's where we were doing the meetings. This is all in their yard, right? And it's all because these are people who have this transformation that's taken place. They have a genuine relationship with God and it's, it's just grown this love for him and for his people in their hearts. And the particular expression for them isn't hard to see because it involves buildings and tents and people meeting there and their son being the pastor. All kinds of, all kinds of good things have come because of this relationship with God. It's not something that they have in name. It's something they have that's changed them, and it's obvious to anyone who shows up. Mom and dad, who are probably maybe 70-ish, they were at every session that I was teaching, trying to soak in everything that they could because they want to keep growing. They want to keep um, becoming more like Jesus, and they're using everything that they have and everything that they are to bless his people, to reach the world, and to honor him. It's just not difficult to see how God has worked in their lives. The writer of Hebrews is saying exactly the same thing. He's saying, guys, I can see that you are different. I I was giving you this warning about apostasy, but I look at you and I have confidence that that's not actually you because I can see this dynamic because it it is transforming faith that is true faith. It's not, it's not that I say something, it's that, that I actually have a real relationship with God that begins to spill out in all kinds of ways. And one of the foundational ways that spills out is in loving God's people. And so he sees that, and he, he affirms them for that. Right? That's one of the things that he says, here's the transformation that takes place. Another transformation is that this is an enduring faith. And that's really been kind of his key concern through this whole section. And because of the nature of enduring faith, he can't say, I see this in you, because you only see that faith is endured after the fact. You have to be at the end of the race and look back and say, you ran the whole race. But he expects that. He knows that that's what a real relationship with God looks like. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not a one and done. It's not a, well, for this moment, this kind of makes sense. It's this all in. This is my life. You are my life. I surrender to you in this moment. I can't do my life myself. I need you. So let's do this together. And it's an enduring reality. And that shows up as as he goes on. Verse 11, he says, we desire that each of you show the same earnestness, right? The earnestness that you've shown for the name of God, for the people of God, keep showing that earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. All the way through. Not just start well, but but finish well, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
You have to finish well, not just start well, because a genuine transforming faith is something that endures. Um, it's, not, it's not just a one-time one thing. Um, I was the backup punter on my Pop Warner team. I know, I know. You know, after service, it's hard to believe, but I'll, I'll be in the back and I'll sign autographs. If any of you have one of my jerseys, I'm happy to sign that for you. Backup punter on a Pop Warner team, it's pretty impressive, right? Uh, which really means I had the second best foot on the team. And if the guy who had the best foot on the team ever got injured, then I was in. Of course, it's Pop Warner. So everyone weighs 80 pounds and they're wearing 20 pounds of padding. How is anyone ever going to get injured? So there's never a chance the backup punter is going to punt unless maybe grandpa comes into town and says, hey, let's go fishing. And then, then I get to go in. And he never did. So I never punted in a game. But I practice. I practice punting. I practice kicking. I practice kicking off a tee. I practice kicking off of a guy holding it. You know, the, whole, the whole nine yards. And as we were being coached, one of the things that they coached us in was kick through the football. The kick goes well past the point of contact. You don't just meet the ball, you go through it, right? And we would actually have a, a drill, an exercise for our, to improve our punting and kicking where you'd put your hand up here and you'd, you'd kick it with your foot, kind of like this. I'm, I, I don't want to show off, right? <laughs> don't want to wind up in the hospital. But I could. Once upon a time, you have to believe it, I could. And if you're doing that, you, if you're doing that right, not only do you kick your hand, but your, your follow-through is so much that your back foot comes off the ground. Because there's a lot more to kicking the football than meeting it when it's right here. If it's a punt or right down here when it's place held, you kick through it, right? The point of contact is only one part of the journey. If you didn't play football, if you played tennis, you know the same thing. If you played baseball, you know the same thing. You hit through the ball. If you box, right, it's a little more graphic, but you punch through their head, right? If you pull your punch, that's what it's called. You pull the punch. It doesn't have the same impact. Literally, you go through. It's all about going well beyond just that point of contact. That's true faith, it is not, hey, here's a point of contact that there's this momentary occurrence that happens. It's, no, this is an all-in. I've surrendered to God. There's this transforming work that has begun in my life, and it will continue. It carries through. The point of contact is really important, but it's part of the journey that carries all the way through to the end. And he's, he's urging them, he's encouraging them, saying, I want you to have the same zeal that you have right now for what's in front of you that you would finish just as well as you started and just as well as you're doing now. Because a transforming faith is a true faith, and transformation isn't just for the moment. It changes your whole life. So I want you to be ready to finish well. Right? So he's, he's unpacked even just a little bit, and he said, I am not actually concerned about you being the apostate ones that I was just describing in last week's passage, because I, I see this fruit I see this transformation, and that's what goes with real faith, because transforming faith is true faith. Before we move on from there, though, I think there's two other things that are important to call out to help it come home to us. You know, as, as we're wrestling with this, I hope you're immediately thinking about your own life and what transformation can you see. What's the fruit of relationship with God? If it's just this um, ah, statement that I affirm, you may not actually have faith at all because a genuine relationship with God always brings change. So where's the change? 
How's your character shifted? How's your love for God and your love for his people, your love for his mission, your behavior? There's all different kinds of ways it shifts, right? And, and our growth is uneven, but there's actual growth in everyone who's ever become a follower of Jesus. There's actual real growth, and that transformation is, is the fruit of the relationship. So what does your fruit look like? And will you finish well? Are you allowing yourself to grow distracted or weary or sidetracked? Or is the passion and focus that you've had, is that going to endure? Because a real faith is one that is supposed to carry us all the way through the journey of this life and launch us into actually the next thing. Um, Another thing important for us to notice before we move on is that this is really about faith, not works. He's calling out the works. In fact, there's this one phrase where he says, you know, God is not unjust to overlook your work. It'd be easy to pick up the idea that often creeps in that says, I've got to impress God. I've got to earn his favor. I've got to tick the box and and we're going to be good, right? And that is absolutely foreign to the gospel. That is absolutely not biblical, right? I cannot earn God's favor. I have his love, And if I have come to faith in Christ, I am now the righteousness of God in him and I have his full favor. He will not withhold any good thing. My behavior does matter. My character does matter. But I'm not earning or losing points. I'm not climbing some scale. right? And and when he says God's not so unjust as to overlook that, it might be easy to smuggle that in. And say, well, see, it's, it's about getting the, getting the star on the chart there. And uh, look at this word carefully. It says, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in the serving of the saints. That word love is really important. What he's saying is, your work is rooted in love. The thing that's driving this is your relationship with God and your love. Right, Your work is not ticking a box. Your work is not seeking some sort of merit. Your work is not because you have an obligation you must fulfill. Your work is flowing out of love. I do not, it's it's saying we are not working for relationship with God. Instead, it's saying this is an outworking of relationship with God. Never work for relationship with God. That's a non-starter. I've failed my own standards, and I never will live up to them. There's not a chance that I will ever remotely come close to God's standards. And even if he gave me a mulligan and I started over, I would fail. But I don't start at a clean slate. I start already messed up. There is no way whatsoever I can ever earn my way into God's favor. I can never satisfy him because his expectations are perfection. He's not asking me to satisfy him. He's pursued me in love and he's given me grace. So the work that comes out of my life is not some bargaining that I'm doing with God. It's just flowing out of the relationship. I don't work for relationship. It's an outworking of relationship. Sometimes it creeps in and and we start working for relationship as if somehow we have to pay the dues. Pay the dues and you get the benefits. That's unbiblical and that's ungodly. It's fruit. 
It's fruit that grows because of our relationship with the Spirit. So he's not talking about, you guys have worked your way in good. He's saying, I can see that it's real faith because there's fruit that's growing from it. And it's, 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 it's rooted in the soil of love, and it's watered by the power of the Spirit. That's what's going on. So this isn't a works thing. This is actually a faith thing that he's talking about. And um, then this last thing we want to look at in this section is, is trying to bring it really home personally. Um, don't miss these words. Uh, in verse 9 again, though we speak in this way, right? That's all the harsh things he's just said. In fact, let's reread some of that to get the intensity. So back up to verse 4. Here's what he just said. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. And then it gives the illustration of land. The, the, the land that bears fruit is blessed and the land that never bears fruit only has weeds, has no actual life, is cursed and burnt. And he's just given them that warning. And then he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. In your case, we actually think it's different. There's a real warning and it's really scary but we don't think that applies to you. But I gave you that warning. In case there's anyone for whom it does apply, I want you to be able to respond because that's a horrible place to be. And all the intensity that he poured out in last week's uh, section, he tries to lighten at least a little bit when he says, yet in your case, beloved. That's the only place in the book of Hebrews that that word beloved is used. He's being very intentional. He's like, guys, I'm not banging on you. I'm not down on you. It may seem like I'm coming down like a ton of bricks, and, and, and I want it to, in a way. But it's not because I don't like you. It's because I do. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I do. You are beloved to me. You need to hear this. This is a warning. Please don't ignore this. Right? Sometimes warnings that are given very, very sternly are actually the greatest act of love. A number of years ago, I was doing a hospital visit and uh, visiting with somebody from our church and, uh, you know, that impenetrable uh, sound barrier of that tiny little curtain between beds in the hospital. So somebody's on the other side of that curtain and their doctor comes in to talk to them. Now, I'm talking, there's two of us uh, talking with whoever's from our church, but this doctor is unloading on this patient. I've never heard anything like it before. I mean, she is just going after the woman in the bed. And she is just full throttle. You, I don't ever want to see you in here again. You are killing yourself. You have got to change. I don't, you know, this is crazy. Just all kinds of, wow, talk about bedside manner. <laughs> Whoa, I don't know what happened to this doctor, but she's really mad. That's the way it seemed. And then, then the conversation shifts. I mean, I'm trying not to, to listen, but, you know, that four millimeters of nylon fabric is not exactly helping me here. And uh, it becomes really clear. This woman is, is literally drinking herself to death. And she's been in the hospital multiple times. She's gone through multiple rehab um, kind of uh, treatments. And, and they haven't worked. 
Or more accurately, they worked and then she relapsed. They worked and then she relapsed. They worked and she relapsed. And what the doctor was driving at is it's not just about, it's not just about addressing your symptom here. There's something deeper going on. You need some help in a whole different arena, right? I can give you medication. You can go to another rehab. But there's, some, you, there's a reason you're drinking yourself to death. And it's not just your propensity to drink. It's not just alcoholism. There was something else going on in this woman's life. The doctor was discerning. And she was saying, you need, you need a pastor. You need a priest. I don't know what you need. You need a friend. But something's got to change. And then she turned around and walked out of the room. <laughs> and we're awkwardly trying to finish our visit and have to leave. And um, I was just burdened for that woman. When I left the, the room, but we had uh, another appointment. And in fact, I had appointments all the way through the evening. And then the next morning, I was getting on a plane and flying away. So there was no chance that I was going to have to talk to this woman anymore. And I was just really burdened for her. And I was sharing that burden with somebody. And um, in the middle of the conversation, they just interrupted and blurted out, I'll go. And later on, they told me, I don't know what I was thinking. That's, uh, what was I thinking? I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to talk to somebody that doesn't even know me. I had to wake them up to do it. And it's like, they're going to take me away in handcuffs, the crazy person. It's like, what's going on? But they said, I felt impelled by God. There was something more going on there. And so they did. They went to the hospital. They found the woman. The, the person from our church had already been moved. She was in the room alone. She was asleep. They had to wake her up. And start a conversation very awkwardly. The pastor was in here earlier and heard what was going on between you and the doctor and thought you might need a friend. And so I just thought I'd see if there's anything I could do to help. And in that moment, the woman just went, and just started unburdening herself, unloading all this junk of life. And they have this extended conversation. By the end of that conversation, she trusted Christ and began a transforming process. Now, I'm not naive. There's more that has to go on in her life to deal with her addiction and, and so on. But it was like this, we've got, now gotten to the, to the root problem here. There's something deeper going on here. And it was that doctor's warning that came across so harsh to me. It was actually what God used. God had a plan. God had a plan all the way through, including you can't go, somebody else is gonna go, and I'm gonna give them a shove, and they're gonna, it's like this is a God moment. Right When he's talking to them, that's what it's been. It's been a God moment. And he starts this next section by saying, in light of all that, it just, despite all that, I have a different kind of expectation for you. In your case, I don't think that that's fundamentally where you are. But we have to ask the question, what about in our case? Because this warning has been preserved for us too. And as we looked at that passage last week, I said, I, I think what it really is getting at is that there are people, there's always people, who are on the journey with God's people, who can see and appreciate Jesus, can see and appreciate the word of God, experience some of the things that God is doing, but they don't embrace it. They value it, but they don't embrace it. And they're just kind of sitting in this, this line, that's a, that's a wonderful place to be. That is a graced place to be. But his warning last week is don't turn away from that place without embracing. Because if you come to that point and you turn away, there's no hope. He's telling them, I don't believe that of you. In your case, I don't think that's what's real. 
But we have to ask the question because it's been preserved for us. What about in my case? Every week, there's people who come and are part of this family, and we love you very much, but you have not surrendered to Christ. You value the things that you see, you're part of the things, you experience some of the things, but in your heart of hearts, it's hard to let go of your addiction to being your own God. And in saying that, I'm not being harsh towards you because I'm just giving you my testimony and every other testimony of anyone who's ever come to faith in Christ. We are all addicted to being our own gods. I got it, I know what to do, I can fix it, and that's wrong. And even when we see that, it's really hard to just surrender and trust, right? Years ago, I heard somebody describe it with these words, and I just appropriated them because I think it captures it well. It is a blindfolded, hands-up surrender. It says, God, help. I can't fix any of it because the problem is not my circumstances. The problem is my heart. Not only am I broken, I am, but I'm also sinful. I'm rebellious at my heart. I want to be God. And that's ruining everything. And it's not true. I'm not you. I surrender. I believe. I believe that Jesus came into this world for me. And I believe he died the death that I should have died because my rebellion, like everyone else's rebellion, is a capital offense. It is seeking to overthrow the government of the universe. It is seeking for me to be God and kick you out. I get it. I'm under your condemnation. And I'm so grateful that Jesus came and died the death that had to be died. And I'm glad he rose again from the dead, offering new life. And here I am. I surrender. I'm, it's just a blindfolded, hands-up surrender. I just entrust myself fully to you. Right? When he's giving them the warning, he says, in your case, I don't think that's where you are. But we have to ask, what about in our case? Right? It's not just a hypothetical, well, maybe this could happen, because in fact, he continues to have at least a measure of concern. Look in verse 11. He's just said, I don't think this is true of you, but I desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have full assurance. It's like, it's, tr- it's true of you that you're obviously followers of Jesus, but is that true of each one of you? Is it true of you and of you and of you and of you and of you? Because it's true of you, but how about you personally? Right? That's, that's what he's doing because it, it, that's the way it works. We're all here together, but some of us are not actually part of the family of God. And that's what he wants to address. And before he leaves that, he gives one more parting shot over the shoulder saying, I know, I know that this isn't true of you, but is it, is it for all of you? Is this, can I say that about each and every one of you? He wants them to think about it, and he wants us to think about it too. And I just want to spend one more moment on this before we move on to the next section with an invitation. Every week, every week we gather, and every week there's, there are people who are really excited or really interested or really finding good things. You are always welcome. We are so grateful that you're here. But the only way that you will experience what God has ultimately for you is to fully embrace. 
which isn't you now doing some works and ticking some boxes that won't work. It is fruit that flows out of a relationship. The relationship comes first. And the relationship starts with an absolute surrender. And if you're here and you've not actually surrendered and trusted Christ, I'd ask you to do that today. And in fact, I would ask you to do something decisive because we want, we want you to experience what God has for you. And the way that that has historically been expressed is in baptism, right? There's a response in our hearts to God of faith. Faith is what saves us. It's not some action. Sometimes people say, pray to receive Christ. You don't actually pray to receive Christ. You trust to receive Christ. Pray is a way of expressing that. Baptism is a way of expressing that I have trusted Christ. Some of you, I suspect, have already actually trusted Christ, and it's time to be public about that. It's time to make a statement to say, yes, I'm in with Jesus. And so I would invite you to let us know. We're going to schedule a baptism in a few weeks, and we'd like you to be a part of it. Some of you are like, I think I'm on that brink. We'd like you to explore that. In fact, we're going to have, sitting down here in a minute, um, several people. Craig's going to be here, and Peter's going to be here, and um, Kathy's going to be here. And if during the singing at any point... You say, I need to explore this more. You just come up, sit next to one of them, let them talk to you. They'll take you outside and talk. We, we just want you to have that opportunity. Do not, please, do not walk away from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the warning of the first part of the chapter. He says, that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen. Don't walk away from that. I don't think that's where you are, but I'm not sure that's where every single one of you are. So let me just remind you one more time. That's where he's gone we want to give you that chance. So as, as we're singing, I'll bring you back to this in a minute, remind you, but as we're singing any time during the worship time, you can, you can come up and talk to somebody. We'd love to have a chance to talk to you. Don't leave here without having uh, addressed that, right? So this first section is true faith is transforming faith. Let's, let's catch the last bit quickly. Um, starting in verse 13 all the way through the end of the chapter, his point is that life anchors in God's character. Life anchors in God's character, which is so important because my character is very uneven and flawed. I am a sinner. I am frail. I am broken. I am stupid. I am foolish. I am human. Fill in the blank. All of those things and more are true of me. And if it's dependent on my character, when things are going well, I may feel pretty good. When things aren't going very well, I'm really discouraged. And if I could see things from God's standard, they're never actually going very well because I want to look at who I am compared to everyone else and I can feel kind of good about that, but I have to look at who I am compared to God's standard, which is perfection, and then I don't feel so good. Right? In Christ, I'm the righteousness of God. I have his, I have his righteousness. But in my own life, I'm a mess, Right? And so it's a great truth and it's a great encouragement. And it's a great source of strength to say my ultimate reality, my life is anchored in God's character, not mine. Let's look at this next section. He's just said to them, uh, I want you to imitate those who, who, who through faith and, and patience inherit the promises, then picking it up in verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, 
since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who have, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place between the cur- behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he's back in the main argument of the book. He's going to talk more about how Jesus is superior. But before he gets there, he's saying, guys, I want you to be like those of old who were patient, who were able to endure. And they were able to endure not because they were so great, but because God is the one who is the anchor. God is your anchor for life. It is his character that you can count on. And he, he reminds us that God made promises. And then at one point when he's talking to Abraham, he wants to make it really clear. It's like, okay, God can't break his word. He has to be honest. He has to be truthful. That's his character. So when God says something, that's what's going to happen. That should settle it. God says, I'm going to fulfill this promise. I'm going to give you many heirs. That should settle it. But he wants to make it really clear. He wants to meet Abraham where he is. And so he says, I swear to it by myself, right? And that's part of the argument. He's saying, you know, when, when, when we're in a discussion or an argument or there's a question, the thing that will settle that sometimes is someone um, swearing to it, right? A sworn out affidavit, an oath. And they do that by somebody greater than themselves. But who's God swear by? Because God, there's nobody greater than God. So he swears by himself. And the whole point is, you already had his word. He already said this. He can't break his word. But now he's also given an oath. He can't break his oath. You've got these two inviolable things. God will keep his promise. Based on that, then, you can keep trusting. And he gives us Abraham as an example, which is really encouraging. Because Abraham, though he was pretty amazing was also not that great in some key ways, right? Think about this. He's the guy who twice, twice married off his wife to another man to save his own skin. It is not his character that anchored his life. It was the promise of God rooted in God's character that anchored his life. Right, later on in the book of Hebrews, he's going to give us this big list of the hall of fame of faith that we, we call it sometimes in, in chapter 11. If you read it carefully, there's some people in there that belong on no list of anything good anywhere at any time whatsoever with the singular exception of they had for at least a moment the good sense to trust God. Because everything else about their life is a complete train wreck. He's not holding them up. Here's a virtue. All their character is wonderful. They're horrible people. But they trusted God anyway. Right? If you read down through that list, you'll find a guy named Jephthah. Go read his story in the book of Judges. It will curl your hair. There's nothing redemptive about him. And then he's followed by Samson, who's even worse. If you, if you take away our prejudice for saying, hey, here's Samson, the muscle man, and all the kinds of things we pick up with the kind of goofy picture that we have... There's zero redeeming character in the life of Samson whatsoever. He is a wicked, vile, broken, sinful, wretched man. 
but he did trust God. And he's called out for that trust. Because the reality is we are all messed up. We're all broken. And we can try hard and we should try hard. But at the end of the day, if it's up to me, I am going to fail. I can't do it. And I can't even endure to the end. If it's just about dig deeper, hold on, and that's all that you've got to give me, I am going to let go. I'm going to collapse. But he's saying, that's not what it's about. I'm calling you to imitate them by being patient to receive the promise. It takes a while. In fact, Abraham, it's kind of a mix, right? He says, Abraham's patient receives the promise. He receives a level of the promise. Later in the book, he's gonna say, but there's a whole aspect that Abraham never received the promise and he still trusted God. So it's not even like he got the whole package. He got part of the package, but he was able to hold on because it was God who was anchoring it. Abraham's the one God said, I promise, I swear to it. And he could say, it's done. And because of that, he could flee for refuge. He could entrust himself fully. He could endure to the end because it was God who was guaranteeing the outcome. For your life and for mine, we will go up and down so many times in so many ways. And it's not how well we're doing at any given moment. It is the character of God that anchors our lives. If he's promised something, he will carry it out. And I can cling to that and draw, as it says here, strong encouragement from that. And I can endure. Right? One of the things it goes on to say, it goes on to remind us of the main argument of the book. Jesus is our high priest and he's entered into the holy place of heaven. He's in the throne room of God. That's who's anchoring you. Remember that. But I think it's really important that he picks out the story of Abraham for more than just, yeah, Abraham's flawed, but we can see how he waited. And that is, in fact, where God gave the oath. It also says you and I are evidence of the point. I know God is trustworthy because I'm having this conversation with you. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled in me and in you. He says, I will give you many heirs. Now, we know from Scripture that's developed along two lines. There is a genetic Jewish ethnicity that all springs from Abraham, and God kept that promise. There is also a spiritual believing family from Abraham, Jew and Gentile alike, people of faith that's developed through the Scriptures, And that promise was kept as well. So in pointing us to that covenant, there's, we actually, because we're able to read it, we know that it's true. Because here I am. God kept that promise. And if he kept that promise, and he said, I can't break my word, I give you my word, I give you my oath, and you're here now to see that, do you think I can keep the promises I've made to you? Do you think you can keep trusting me when it gets hard, when it gets crazy, when it gets confusing, when it gets doubtful, when it gets dark? Because remember, that's what they're going through. Keep trusting me because I am the one. I anchor it, right? This verse, read it one more time. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We're gonna pray. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come. My encouragement is if you're in a place where you feel like you're hanging by a thread,
Maybe you need to have some conversation and some encouragement. But remember, it's anchored in God. It's not that you've got to figure it out, that you've got the strength, that you can do it. It is the character of God that's going to uphold you. He's the one who's made the promise. He's the one who gave his spirit. He will carry you through. Don't give up on him. If you are really his, fruit should be obvious. So look around. Where's the change? If you're not changing, you, have, you, you see fruit, but right now it's pretty sparse. Maybe you're doing something to stop the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's time to let him make some adjustments to fertilize, to prune. Or maybe you're not actually in relationship at all. You're just kind of around the edges. You've seen some really amazing things from God, but you've never entrusted yourself to them. This is the day to do that. I'm gonna invite you to come at any point while we're singing. Just come onto the front row and somebody will sit and talk with you and we'll explore with you Would you like to be baptized? Would you like to make a public profession? Do you understand what that means? Have you come to faith? Do you have questions? Let's work that out. Don't walk away from the grace of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy in our lives. And I pray that you would, um, yeah, give us the grace to persevere. Remind us of your strength. You are our advocate. Thank you. Uh, Grow the fruit that you have for us, grow that in us. May we delight in you and your people. Um, Lord, for those maybe who don't know you, um, would you bring this to a place of, of genuine transformation? Would you show them their love, your love in such a compelling way that they're willing to say yes? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.